This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. Yes, please. Um, so should we ask Jennifer and Jeremy to ask about themselves, a bit of background in case someone doesn't know them? Absolutely. This topic actually was born based on a session that Jeremy ran at the CNS Summit. So if you do not mind me uh, passing on the ladies first um, norm, I might start with Jeremy just to level set us on himself. Introduce yourself, Jeremy, and also share a little bit on today's topic. Why did you set up a session way back at CNS Summit on this topic? And why do we still have things to talk about here? Yeah, absolutely. Craig and, and and thanks for you know inviting me to to join you here. Um, so r- real quick from my background, um, I, I'm I'm an electrical engineer at heart. I, I'm a University of Florida grad and um, ha- have uh, always loved technology since since I was a, a kid and um, ca- came out of that and got involved in some things early on that uh, had to do with, uh, redesigning obsolete military aircraft platform electronics. And that's a whole other world for me, but that's where I started. And, uh, I made my way into, uh, into Actigraph early on. There's a long story there. Maybe we'll touch on today, but, um, it was involved early in, in the early days of Actigraph in designing the first, uh, wearable device that, that we had, and it was dialed in for academic research. And so, um, help help with the engineering of that product and help get it across the 510k finish line and kind of learned about that and and since that time that was in 2004 when the company was founded but since that time I've served in just about every role you can serve in in the company from engineering I I moved into software development because of my background in firmware development and I managed a small team um, which then became a big team and eventually made it to the um, head of technology role and then to the CTO role. And um, I guess most recently is the chief operating officer in 2018 in the company. And then uh, uh, eventually to, to this role now that I'm in as CEO here at Actigraph. I've been in that role since May of 2020. And Actigraph, you know, our history is, as I said, started in wearable design, wearable technologies, but we learned, you know, a lot about longitudinal studies from our academic research over the years. And um, I think as of 2020, there are there are about 18,000 peer-reviewed publications that reference our products and services in the public domain. So we've been doing this a long time and have made a lot of mistakes, as you can imagine. Um, but in, in 2014, we, we parlayed that that work that we had done into clinical trials. And our first study with GlaxoSmithKline, you know, back in 2014 was 
eye-opening in, in how you actually deploy this uh, these, these technologies, these wearable technologies into, into clinical trials. And DCT wasn't even a thing, right? And uh, learned pretty quick that, you know, the idea of setting up a device and managing it was not something that a site was equipped to do or desired to do in any form or fashion. And so, you know, we spent the next several years developing a suite of tools that would that would really simplify the deployment in a, uh, at the time was a site-based scenario. Um, and have really focused in the past four years on developing tools to, to allow remote patient monitoring in any setting, including DCTs. Um, and then have, have really invested heavily in bringing the science into our business so that um, we can help you know, develop the meaningful endpoints out of the data that these technologies collect. And that's really where we get into you know, the CNS Summit, Craig, is as, as we see the complex, complexities of not just you know, deploying a wearable to, to a patient in a, in a different area, whether it's at a site or at their home, but also getting the meaningful data out of that device in a, in a, a way that it adheres to the protocol requirements. It's complicated. And that session that we did, and I appreciate you joining me on that, was called it was Opportunities and Challenges of Collecting Wearable Data in Decentralized Trials. And um, John Reitz joined us on that. And I, I really, you know, there's multiple perspectives here. There's, there's the pharma perspective, which you're familiar with. There's the technology perspective, which I'm familiar with, and the operationalization uh, but then there's the other pieces that that often have to happen to to do this right, which you know, there's always an EPRO component. There's tablets involved, and so there's a lot of complexities around doing this right. And it's not about the wearable; it's actually about the patient and how do we get there. And so the topics that we bubbled up during that conversation had to do with proper support for the patient. Um, you know, what what do we do about um, getting devices to them when things fail? How do we properly interpret the data and what are the barriers that we see in front of us and doing that the right way? And so, um, you know, that's what we're trying to solve today here at Actigraph. And we put ourselves in a unique position of having owned both the hardware and the algorithm and the operationalization piece of the puzzle to try to solve that problem. But there's a lot of, of headwind in, in different areas that we're trying to overcome. And so, uh, hopefully, you know, as, as the industry progresses and digital measures become uh, something of uh, really just measures, not just digital measures, they're, they're just measures, um, you know, we, we want to support that transition. And so that's that's what we're doing. That's what we're all about. And that's that's how I ended up here. That's how I ended up here. You know, it's uh, <laughs> there's a, a meme on LinkedIn of uh, of some guy sliding down his driveway in the ice. And it says something on the uh, bottom that this is how I found my career in clinical research. Uh, so it is always fun to hear people's stories about their uh, their journey in this field. And Actigraph is a is an interesting company. It's been around this space since before sensors were cool, and uh, it, it's certainly interesting to see the evolution now in terms of being able to scale and address so many different therapeutic areas. Yeah, thank you, Craig, and and we're we're blessed to be in this spot and have got. You know, I, I call them clients, but we've got a lot of great partners that we've had the opportunity to work with and uh, have learned a lot about this space. The biggest challenge in, in, in the space that I live in with technology is that, you know, software developers don't understand what a meaningful outcome is. <laughs> they don't understand, you know, what a, a clinical trial protocol design means. And so trying to bring those two pieces together has been uh, something that we've we've learned a lot about over, over the years. So, yeah. 
It's great. That's great. Thanks, Jeremy. And thanks again for setting this topic up originally at the CNS Summit. We had a webinar not too long ago, and it's great to keep this dialogue going. Jennifer Price, welcome back. I can only imagine that you're sitting with your phone in your dunk coffee by your side. <laughs> um, it's great to have you back here, though. Please introduce yourself for our audience and share a bit about your perspective on today's topic. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I head the uh, data and analytics group at, at Thread. So that means that I'm responsible for all of our sensors and wearables, um, supporting all of those devices, as well as integrating them. But I, I really love what Jeremy said about it being all about the participant, because I think that's that's the part we really have to focus on is is making this data, um, making the the technology usable for the participant, and then moving the data through to be usable as the digital endpoints with the stats team. And that's that's it sounds easy, but it's as we know it's not always easy. But I've I've been in the industry twenty five plus years. Um, working both in uh, CROs and, and big pharma and technology companies. I spent a lot of time at Cephalon, uh, which is now Teva, doing sleep studies where, where they use a lot of different digital endpoints. Um, so I, I always found that fascinating. I'm a big technology nerd, just, just like Jeremy said, um, love the technology, was an early adopter for EDC technologies and and different types of data capture um, technologies early on. I'm very active with SCDM. I was um, board member for many years, secretary of the board for the Society for Clinical Data Management there, as well as being super active with CDISC and helping to design some of those standards around data acquisition, the CDASH standards, um, so that we can all standardize the way we're collecting data. But I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks, Craig. That, that CNS summit, there was a lot of good information out of that summit. You know, I, I, I was there, I was on a couple panels there, and, and people are just excited, right, about, about collecting data um, directly from the participant in, in new and different ways as we're doing here with DCT studies. So thank you. And it's a great time, Jennifer, for us to, you know, keep these conversations going. Not that it's new for us to talk about wearables mm -hmm. or decentralized, but to have these forum like today and at the summit and beyond to keep sharing the, the real world experiences because we are all building so much experience today. Exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing more and more of that. And, and I love the, the sharing lessons learned and sharing best practices around the collection of this data, uh, similar to how we did way back when, when we were just starting with EDC, because there are a lot of challenges that we all see. Um, you know, we're all, we're all seeing, I'm sure, similar challenges that we, we need to get over around training and process updates and and uh, analytics, how are we looking at this data coming in? How are we sending it over? How are we analyzing it? Yeah, it's all, it's all fascinating. Thanks so much, Jennifer. And we have Keith joining us today. Keith, you were there as well at the summit for that original session and online with the webinar the other day. Introduce yourself for the audience. If they don't know you, share your initial perspective on today's topic. Sure. Um, thanks, Craig. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Okay, good. 
uh, my first time speaking in, in a clubhouse, so I wanted to make sure the tech was all working. Hi, everybody. My name is Keith Wenzel. I'm a director at ParXL um, and the sensors and wearables team at ParXL has a dialed line to me from a commercial perspective. Um, it, was, it was a real pleasure to join Jeremy's session at uh, CNS Summit. Amir, um, good to be in touch again, and you did a masterful job there. Um, so kudos to you. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the overlap between sensors and wearables and, and DCT, um, obviously very germane today. Uh, we at ParXL, um, when the pandemic hit, we created a DCT team. Um, but since then, it's become part of what we do every day in and day out. And so that DCT team has been distributed across the, the company um, because decentralized trials take uh, include all aspects of, and functions of typical contract research services. Um, from a sensors and wearables perspective, we did some market research a couple of years ago of 160 individuals in large and small pharma. And one of the not surprising, but it was good to have reinforcement um, feedbacks, um, survey results was that the main reason that Biopharma is using, are using sensors and wearables in clinical trials is because they can get to data that they would not otherwise be able to get in a classic clinical trial design. So um, yeah, the, 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 uh, the numbers vary, but it certainly seems like there's, we're going to see these sensors and wearables proliferate through trials and maybe someday every single trial will have one. Sorry for that grand pause as I fumble for my mute button, Keith. Amir, it sounds like uh, we have plenty to talk about here. I know I've got questions on my mind related to where are these tools in reality being used most today? What types of use cases, whether known measurements being captured with a device or innovative and novel digital measurements? I'm curious to hear from our guests on the state of the field today and start to think about where are regulations taking us in both the U.S. and around the world? Amir, where, where do you want to start the conversation? What's pressing on your mind? Sure, I think all of those and there are plenty more, but I'm happy. Let's start with the ones you just stated and others, and I will come in if needed. Fabulous. So let's Great. jump in there. Um, uh, Jeremy, if we can start back with you. Uh, there are lots of places that wearables could be incorporated, but and, and there are different use cases, whether it's measuring the knowns or measuring the new uh, in terms of types of diagnostic data. Where are you seeing these tools used most today in the real world? Yeah, it's a great question, Craig. And um, it, it, it just depends. It, I hate to say that, but it depends on who's asking. And every sponsor we engage with or CRO are, are at a different stage in the journey. Um, some and you know are, are are more on the further along path. They've done a lot of homework and and what they desire to do, and some are just exploring. And so, yeah, it's across the board. I think if I were to categorize a, a bit of, of sort of if I could start with how they're you know, these these products are being used, yeah, I think every therapy and and every um, you know intervention that we deal with in in the clinical space in some way affects physical activity and sleep. And th that's across the board. 
so the majority of the time I'm, I'm engaging with people on simple measures. I think we tend to overcomplicate what we're trying to do with, with these technologies, but in a lot of ways it is pretty simple. Um, we, we see engagement of, you know, how, how can I quantify and qualify the, the amount of time that this person is, is up and moving, you know, and how is the, the treatment affecting that or it, how is the treatment improving that? And another interesting area is we don't think about often is, is we really accelerate our, our work with is, is sedentary movement. You know, we, in a lot of cases, we, we deal with participants in these studies who are um, we're just trying to, to get them to a less sedentary state. I, I don't want to use the word more active state. It's really less sedentary. And there's a lot of literature that is foundational literature about how to measure sedentary and how to measure measure physical activity. A lot of times in most of the therapeutic areas, we're engaged at some level with those. The more advanced uh, use cases come down to specific mobility, right? And, and neurology is, is kind of the obvious area here um, where we'll see, can we, can we qualify a measure of gait movement? Can we qualify sway? Um, and so we do get, we, we do engage at that level as well. Um, and if, if evolve the solution to get to a place where we can do that pretty accurately. Um, from a therapeutic area side, you know, it's, it's also a bit across the board. I'm looking at a graph right now that, that we shared during our, our webinar at the time, and it's, it's all over the place. 22% of our total engagement here at Actigraph is in neurology, while, you know, 16% is in respiratory, another 16% in cardiovascular, another 13% in psychi uh, psychiatry-based areas, uh, rheumatology and immunology, hematology. Uh, oncology. So it's it's really across the board in the application. What we're seeing, though, is this movement in the direction of more novel, clinically specific measurements. And that's an indication that I think is a positive one around uh, that corroborates the story from regulatory and this desire to see these digital measures and be, being used as primary and secondary endpoints. And as, of course, you know, we, we would expect these, these are going to get more specific and more anchored. And so that's a bit of the path that we're on and kind of the majority is is in that sweet spot in the middle great yeah, great way to think about it, certainly around the, the the types of measurements that are most prevalent lend themselves so well for actigraphy jennifer uh i would imagine a thread you're 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 getting very familiar with actigraphy and perhaps a lot of other connected devices and measurements when you're thinking about wearable sensors, connected devices in our trials, what types of therapeutic areas are you seeing this lean into most heavily right now? Yeah, we're seeing a couple different trends. Um, one is related to collecting um, auxiliary safety data. So collecting things like heart rate, blood pressure, the, the vital sign type data um, to, to supplement the safety data that that also gets collected around adverse events and, and things like that. Um, we're, we're seeing more companies want to do pilots first with a variety of, of wearables and devices. So um, using things like Apple Watches and Fitbits and Garmin devices to collect this data and, and letting participants uh, use their own device if they have it or uh, you know, provisioning a, a device, one of these, these common devices, but looking at the outputs from all the different types of sensors to see what works in their, their trials um, 
to, to supplement the safety data. So we're, we're seeing that uh, regarding therapeutic areas, we're seeing a lot of dermatology studies using things like, um, it, it kind of it, in a gray area with wearables and devices, but things like ghosting, um, ghosting devices to help take better, better photos, um, devices to track skin uh, lesions to, to um, we have a skin tracking device we have a company using. So uh, that that's where I've seen the most growth in those those dermatology devices. And, and, and I'd be interested in knowing if everybody else is seeing this gray area of not really a wearable or device, but an app related technology collecting those digital endpoints, acting like a device, you know, like some of those image uh, image apps that that collect images and then do things like sharpen the image, measure the image. You know, I think of those as digital endpoints from a from a device where the device is the the, the phone and the, the device um, technology is the app. So we're we're seeing yeah a lot a lot of those types of things. Well, your your observation, Jennifer, reminds me of uh, my friends from Pfizer used to school me on um, when I, when I would say things like I just want to get raw data off of a device, and they would mm -hmm. kind of laugh at me and say, there, "There's no such thing. What do you even mean by raw data? <laughs> right? I, I want a raw image, but look at all the types of post processing that yeah. can be done to make that a better image in terms of image analysis, but uh, what are the consequences in terms of the tools and the software that are used for that to happen? Yeah, it, exactly. Well, Keith, um, yeah. let's jump over to you, my friend. Uh, what, where are you seeing penetration today around use of wearables, devices, sensors, and are they leaning in more heavily, Keith, around existing and known endpoints or are you starting to see momentum around the more innovative digital endpoints that need to be qualified or validated um so it's a combination for the latter question we certainly do have sponsors bringing their own device it might be very unique device um, for their particular needs and looking to validate those uh, devices in the context of what they are pursuing for endpoints um, we do see across the board that, you know, um, as Jennifer said, we see exploratory um, use, but um, we also see, you know, use in phase one all the way to phase four. Um, we've had a phase four trial where the FDA was asking the sponsor to confirm that um, study subjects could self-diagnose um, a, a disorder using their device, and, and so therefore, the, um, the, the trial was actually driven by a regulatory request. Um, and then with respect to therapeutic areas, you know, cardiology, immunology, and endocrinology, pulmonary, neurology, um, all the way down to hematology and rare disease. Um, that survey I referenced earlier, all of those were 10% or more um, of the respondents said they had incorporated in those therapeutic areas. And we're seeing that as well. The types of devices include heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, heart rhythm, ECG, EKG, blood glucose, steps, you know, as we've talked about, actigraphy is one, or act, act, 
activity is one of the greatest indicators of overall health. Um, and so there's a lot of interest, obviously, in actigraphy. We, we would say almost, I'd say 30, 35% of the opportunities are in that space. I imagine that all makes sense. And Keith, then what's your what's your sense on the state of the field today? Uh, are are you seeing an increase? Are you seeing uh, is this feeling kind of level? What what's your take in terms of enthusiasm for adoption specifically around these connected devices? I think there's there is enthusiasm, but. There's a little bit of confusion in the industry as well. Um, so the, the players really um, fall into two categories, um, device manufacturers and then sensor ingestion platforms. And, um, and so the sponsors and the CROs have to navigate that space of a device manufacturer who may not be able to speak clinical trials. And so that that limits uptake and and um, and then also on the platform side of these of things, there's no clear winner yet. Um, and so therefore, sponsors and CROs are having to go out and test the various platforms individually, um, use them, um, and very much they are they have to pick a platform that can ingest the data they they desire, if the device manufacturer that they're leveraging doesn't have the platform of their own. But yes, people are enthusiastic and um, we're very optimistic about the growth of sensors and wearables. That's great to hear. So, you know, sometimes I worry. I worry that there's a lot of complexity here that gets very study specific with specific devices being needed to measure specific endpoints for specific studies and that makes it hard for us to generalize we we need to have certain investments up front in terms of time and effort to develop and qualify different measurements and so keith uh, jeremy I, I i jeremy i see you're coming off of mute i worry sometimes about our ability to have sustainable growth in these areas or will it always become highly resource constrained yeah i, I mean i think craig look it's just be honest. I mean, this, it's still nascent. I mean, this is this is evolving, and I'm I'm reminded of, you know, when FDA released their draft guidance in I think 2009 around uh, COA, and people were just fighting on paper, right? Like, I don't understand why we need paper is the way to go, and it's just easy and it's cheap, right? I mean, paper is easy to do, and I mean, it's a bit similar, right? The, uh, FDA just released their DHT guidance in December of this year. And I think you're seeing a lot of consolidation that will take place over the next two years, not only in terms of you know, measurements and how we do this, um, but also in terms of businesses coming together to solve this problem. And, you know, some of your vendors that are traditionally, CR, you, know, uh, you know, PRO and ECOA type vendors, you know, we, we talk to a lot of them about, um, you know, how, how do they forward integrate and, and, and partner with our platform to accomplish their goal and make that happen. And it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, they're all trying to figure it out. Your pharma folks, I think it's good to hear Jennifer talk about the POCs. We see that too. And I think the goal is mainstream adoption, but there's a lot of fear. What What is raw data? My biostatistician has no idea how to deal with a continuous stream of 14 days of data coming from 100 patients. You know, how do we manage that? How do we 
you know, get to the signal out of the noise. And at the end of the day, clinical trials are all about signal. We know there's better signal here. It's just how do we get to it? And I think it, we're in this middle of this process where it's it's gonna um, it's gonna happen. If you look at any not any, I mean generalizing too much. But if you look at a lot of the CEO profiles on LinkedIn and, and these sponsor organizations, they're speaking about this very thing about you know the desire to get better signals, the, the desire to get um, better ways and techniques um, for the participants in these studies. It's, that's what it's all about. And so. Um, you know, we, we see that we see that happening right now, and it's we're just kind of in the middle of it. So, but to your point there, Craig, you're right. Um, you do need to be cognizant of the elements that are required to deliver here. Um, there is the device selection and validation. There's getting the devices to the sites. There is the whole data integration <laughs> and ingestion of the data such that it ends up with a sponsor or a CRO and can be appropriately visualized without breaking the blind. Um, but you do want to keep a, an eye on things like compliance, right? And maybe even battery um, device health, like whether the, the device is failing. Um, and then there's the, as Jeremy said, the analysis of the data and, and then packaging that up and delivering it to regulators. And then you've got the over all the overlay of the science here. So um, there, it is a complex um, journey to implement these uh, and you do need to be prepared to have all of those elements um, covered when you um, pursue devices and trust. Don't, don't forget tech support. <laughs> there you go. So, um, you know, we're at the bottom of the hour, so this is when Craig usually, uh, one, resets the room, and secondly, we ask people to join us on the panel. Before, uh, Craig, you do that, uh, first of all, I'm very appreciative that uh, you know, everyone on the panel has been so uh, sort of honest and really thinking about the challenges. Um, before we sort of go to the audience, and I see people representing sort of site leadership there too, I'm sure they're going to have uh, comments and questions, I certainly do. Um, but before we go to that, just wondering, uh, Jeremy, Keith and Jennifer, is there any other challenges right now you see from your perspective that we haven't mentioned just briefly? If there's anything else you think is a challenge to us, that'd be great to hear about before Craig opens up the room. I think we just lost Jennifer for briefly or she's back. But Jeremy, do you have anything else that you think we should talk about as a challenge to the field? Um, yeah, I was just thinking about that, Amir, and the, the best way to, to, to word that, I, I guess it's not really a challenge, but I, I think there's still a bit of a myopic view about the use of, um, of these, of technologies, you know, digital technologies, um, across the board. I mean, I, I think, think about our folks, our, our partners in oncology, and there's so much opportunity for us to help patients there, but we get very focused on, um, survivability in those studies rightly so I, I don't disagree with that but i think you know there, there's a challenge for all of us across the board not only in pharma but in technology to be thoughtful in in how you know, we're not just trying to um to look for a signal we're also trying to figure out um how can we make the lives of these participants better and so uh there, there's a lot of you know kind of gaps to bridge in, in those different areas so yeah if if I could add one thing, um, Keith mentioned compliance. 
And I think that's an area, you know, we, we, we've gotten good at measuring compliance with, with EPRO and with activities, but measuring compliance with these, these devices. And we, we talked about the, the stream of data coming in, you know, is, is so vast that figuring out how to how to see if a participant is struggling with compliance or, or Keith also mentioned battery life you know being able to see those real time metrics and that indicate hey this participant hasn't synced their fitbit you know for 2 days something like that i i i know we're we're doing that at thread but i think helping the sites this is a huge burden on the sites and and Craig I'd love to talk about this a little more later is is monitoring all of these devices and, and the sites always end up as a tech support you know call and and they really shouldn't be in that position but um i think those are some big challenges we have today with with sensors and wearables i think that is a great setup for our uh, second half of the hour so if you are just joining us here welcome this is tgifdct our weekly gathering here on clubhouse in the Decentralized Trials Club, we gather here on Fridays, 9 to 10 Eastern uh, Pacific, noon to 1 Eastern. Every Friday, we rotate different topics based on you, the audience, your feedback. So if there's a question on your mind, a topic you would love to see us unpack and cover, let Amir and I know and we'll make sure we bake it into the schedule. And if you'd like to come on board and co-host, by all means, let us know. You could be the next Jeremy, Keith, or Jennifer in the coming weeks. Uh, this week, we have Jeremy, Keith, and Jennifer joining us to talk about wearables and decentralized trials. And now's the chance for our audience. Come on up on the stage. Use your little hand wavy icon on the bottom, just like Brad, Jane, and Nelson have. Bring your question and ideas forward. Uh, Brad, you have been so patient with us. I think it was last week. We, we just couldn't get you in time and I think you had to run off. So I am so thrilled that we've got you back here, Brad Hightower. And something tells me Jennifer's last observation in terms of site burden and support may be a good segue as we uh, turn over to you. Come on off mute, introduce yourself, share your perspective today. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Uh, my name is Brad and, uh, you know, I work at a at the site level and yeah, Jennifer teed me up pretty nicely there. I think, uh, you know, we don't yet see a lot of wearables integrated into the trials we run, but it, you know, it does raise the question of how it affects sites and PIs. You know, we're dealing with these black box models and technology and unknown algorithms. Um, I mean, how does this affect PI oversight in terms of you know safety monitoring and, I mean, how much more complex does, does this get for sites? Is that a, I mean, is that clear yet? Or is that still sort of a, something we're, we're trying to, to determine? That's, that was really, that's all, all I got. Jennifer, Keith, any, uh, any takers in terms of how you're thinking about communicating expectations with investigator sites, whether it's around operational clinical safety considerations, Keith? Yeah. Um, we try to make it as easy as possible, but Brad's right. This is additional burden, um, both for the patients and for the trial um, sites. We One model is to have um, either your device company or your CRO um, be an extension of, of the site for doing things like compliance monitoring proactively so that the 
that they can alert the site as opposed to having the site do that work themselves. So um, also the training materials, it goes without saying, need to be excellent. I did a training the other day with a device manufacturer and they did a live video. They showed using the um, device how to apply it, how to clean it, um, how to charge it. And that was a really effective um, method for conveying from, from the device manufacturer to the site how they go about um, um, uh, using the devices in the trial, applying the devices. So videos, pamphlets, you also need to reinforce for the patients that this is important um, data that's being collected as part of the trial, it is part of the protocol, and the data will be monitored. Brad, what are we missing? What else do investigators need to hear to build comfort and confidence with these approaches and new studies? I mean, I think that's a fair question and maybe not yet even clear. Um, I mean, if you think about the prospect of, you know, a site enrolling 50 patients and having a constant stream of data uh, that they're in some ways responsible for, uh, whether it be, you know, safety compliance or uh, something else. I mean, that's that feels <laughs> feels very overwhelming just to just to consider. So, uh, no, it's a fair question. I think it's still yet to be determined uh, what's going to sort of bridge that gap at this point. Craig, if I could just chime in with our experience in this area, um, just briefly, I Brad, I appreciate your honest insight there. That's that's helpful. I, we 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 figured out in pr pretty early on that there's a lot of stuff here that we 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 could again overthink if we're not careful and um i, I remember sitting across from from some of our partners in just early days right 2016 i think and just asking this question about how, how can we how can we design these technologies to to work and there's just simple things like i yeah this the charging is just such a pain and so i, I just said what how long are you, are you typically deploying these and it was a range right of you know a week to, to two weeks to three weeks, sometimes a month. And so I said, okay, so it sounds like battery life's a big deal, <laughs> right? So, so, you know, we, okay, let's put that on our requirements list. And then the, the whole uh, sort of BYOD um, movement had begun and trying to understand, you know, okay, well, how is the site going to make sure that the patient has the app running on Lord knows which phone they're using? And so, you know, we, we decided that two things were priority for us that turned out to be good choices. And, you know, one was the battery needs to last a long time. And so you know, we made it last 40 days. <laughs> and that was a big help because you just eliminate that need for the site, for the participant, for the study protocol. It's just out of there. I mean, that will charge it up when we get it back. And then the other part was, um, yeah, we, we want to have an app running. And I think that's the way we should do it. And in some cases, you have to have that for ePro and those those work out well, but in cases where you're just passively monitoring, you know, we built this little hub and it's just a, a cellular appliance and it does nothing. It sits, you plug it into the wall and it just sits in the home and passively pulls data. I don't have to configure. I don't have to, um, you know, make sure it's not being killed by the iOS operating system once a day. It just does its thing in the background. Now, you know, you got to pay for the cellular bill for that separately, but in a lot of cases it's decently affordable. And so, Th those were two things that, that we had to do early on to sort of help with that adoption factor. 
And I think that we're getting better with it. I think people are more and more familiar with technology and we see those things becoming less of a burden and new things are now a burden. But, but those are a couple of things that we did to address those challenges. Thank you all. Great, uh, great question. And Brad, uh, stay on up here if you've got, uh, if you've got time. I'm sure some other questions will lean in on that side voice. Jane, it's always good to have you back here. Come on off mute, introduce yourself if anyone doesn't remember you and share your perspective today. Jane, do we still have you? Up there. Oh, there okay. we go. Sorry, I am in his cell dead zone by the timing. Um, thank you for the conversation and letting me chime in with a question. I've got four wearables on and a study hub in my house. So I'm really curious, um, based on things Jennifer said, about how things are changing with making the data accessible to patients probably not raw data where are we headed with that and the second part of the question is what are the patient expectations about being able to see the data that's being collected and is that changing too this is a great question jane you know the it, it really fits in in the context of this larger question of how much data could or should patients be able to access while they're in a trial does having access in a thoughtful way to data in a trial help improve engagement and retention? And how do we strike a balance in making sure we're embargoing data that could or need to be blinded versus other data that maybe should be accessible in the near term? Does seeing my, my actigraphy data, Jeremy, does seeing my actigraph data in real time influence my behavior? Does it not only get me more engaged, does it maybe create a little separation based on treatment assignments that we're seeing and potentially jeopardize the blind. Jeremy, are you seeing opportunities today to make the data visible for the study participant? That's a great and important topic. And, you know, for anybody that's wearing an Apple Watch and Jennifer, I'm assuming, or Jane, I'm sorry, I'm assuming that one of your four might be one of those, but, you know, that, that thing's going to pop up and, and, and remind you that, you know, you didn't hit your goal yesterday. And, you know, I mean, to that degree, we, we need to avoid, right? We need to stay away from um, sort of goal setting, which goes against our um, kind of goal of, of being, um, you know, objectively observant of what's going on in the patient's life. And so that's one area where we will often consult with consumer wearables and where there's a bit of challenges there. And especially as, as people bring their own, they, they kind of have an agenda with them. And so um, yeah, that's one area. But of, of course, uh, the, the, the first, first thing patient wants to know when they finish a study like this is have, hey, I've done this, what are you going to do with the data? And so we, we have seen a big win with our, our patient profile thing that we do. And when these patients come in at the end of their sort of round, like if they finish their first month of observation, and then the next one's going to happen in six months, depending on the protocol, you know, the, we'll, we'll deliver to them a, a profile that shows here's your activity over time. Here's what what it you know what it looks like, and then here's how you contributed to the overall study because you know you want to tap into the participants' involvement in the study. And I think we get caught up in thinking that that participant really wants to know how they in, in particular are doing, but the fact that they're involved in a clinical trial in the first place first place 
speaks to the altruistic sort of nature of these people who are trying to help. They, they want to help the greater good. And so you know, we'll, we'll speak to the patient, patient profile around how much data did you contribute to this study and how is it being used? And I think there's a lot of win that you get there without biasing the patient, which we want to avoid and which FDA will ask about. It's a great question though. You know, everybody's in it uh, for different reasons. I've, uh, I've been a person that has, uh, watched closely conversations in online forum among research participants that are aggressively trying to unblind themselves. Heck, even in the COVID-19 vaccine studies, online forum on Facebook, were where patients were coaching each other on how to get your spike protein level checked and how to interpret a difference to see if you actually got the vaccine or not. Uh, I think people are only human. Keith, I think you had a perspective on this one. Yeah, I mean, we should be striving to share that data in the right format back with patients um, who took the time to participate in our trials. Um, to companies like Thread, though, are part of the solution here during the, during the trial. Um, even if you can't share the data back with the, the, the study subject, you can at least acknowledge that the data is Do we lose Keith and do we crank to you with us? No, I, I was I think, uh, that point. Yeah, lost some audio there myself. Uh, ah, it seemed to have been go. a little bit of a clubhouse drop. Um, <laughs> well, let's uh, let's forge ahead. Jennifer, I think, did you have a, a perspective on this topic as well? Yeah, I, I think that this is a area we're all going to see a lot um, of movement in the next couple of years. We've got a couple sponsors. Um, mostly registry studies that are willing to share the participant data back to the participant. And uh, we, we've seen two models. We've seen one where the participants want to see their data as it compares to the other participants. So an example there would be, um, are you taking a, a corticosteroid to manage your, your, to manage what you're managing? And um, you know, the, uh, so I said yes, and then how many other patients said yes, and how many other patients said no. So comparing their data against other patients' data. And then the other model we've seen is sharing um, with the participant their data over time. So how has your data changed from the beginning of the study to, to the end of the study and, and sharing that back with the participant? And I am super excited about all of these models, because I think, um, I think it, it really does promote engagement and it gives that participant that self, that feeling of satisfaction, you know, around participating in a clinical trial, just like you said, Craig, and helping, helping others. But, you know, as, as a long time, <laughs> um, a long time uh, contributor to clinical trial data, we know that we have to be super careful, right? And I know we've had studies where things like certain certain treatments affect their uh, their heart rate, 
So even seeing, having the PI see their heart rate of the participants could influence and potentially unblind the study. So we have to be super careful there. But I, I expect to see a lot happening in the next few years with that participant, giving back to the participants. Amir, as somebody who's been involved in neuroscience psychiatric clinical trials for a very long time, have we been lazy as study designers and investigators in just assuming the participant is just blinded, period, and now we have to kind of rethink what specifically they are actually blinded to in the trial? So the, um, I wouldn't use the word ad, uh, adjective lazy, right? I think uh, there's so many things that we could do better on, right? So I think really rethinking this, especially as new technologies come in, there's no question we need to make sure, one, that we're not isolated in our study designs and sitting in the ivory tower, right? And have input from a wide range of stakeholders, but really try and always rethink everything we do based on the new technologies that we that are available. They're already here, we just haven't incorporated them. So I think maybe the adjective I would use is kind of, we have been slower than maybe other areas in trying to really be sensitive to our stakeholders' needs. Very balanced perspective, my friend. Nelson, welcome back. Um, come on off mute, introduce yourself, share your perspective or question today. Sure, hey, hey guys. I'm Nelson Rutrick, I own a couple of uh, brick and mortar hybrid sites, I suppose, in the Boston area that do mostly psychiatry, do a bit of Alzheimer's disease research. And what we've seen in wearables in psychiatry is generally, if sponsors use wearables, they tend to do something that involves sleep um, because they're curious about new drugs effects on sleep. I think we, we might all even be understating how horrible adherence is in these trials and how central of an issue it is uh, to the companies because the way we analyze drug results is always through an analysis of who we intended to treat with the drug and what happened to them. So we must assume if someone failed to collect data on a certain day that they did so intentionally that something bad was happening and it should be inferred against the drug. So at least in the studies I've worked on, no sponsors have allowed actigraphy or, or any wearables here to um, be part of a primary or secondary endpoint. Um, and it's really been exploratory. So I, I like to, I don't really know how far along everything is and where it's coming in terms of being used for registrational trials. I am going to drop a link at the top of the screen uh, um, from the Digital Medicine Society's crowdsourced library of digital measurements that have been used for various registration studies. Jeremy, do you want to speak to that question, though, from Nelson while I'm grabbing that link? Yeah, sure, Nelson. And it's it's a it's an evolving challenge, no doubt. And uh, I think that um, we've seen adherence challenges as well. And I think the way that, uh, you know, the way we've got to overcome that is, is, is collaboratively. We, we, you know, the, the, the CROs and the, and the, and the vendors, um, have got to work together to make sure that, that you know, the sites are successful. Um, you know, on, on your point about, uh, being used as primary and secondary endpoints. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's where it needs to be yet. 
I think that we are seeing some actigraph has been used in um, in uh, a couple of pivotals uh, as, as a primary endpoint um, and, and secondary as well. But you know they're 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 few and far between right now, rather than rather than the norm. And I think where we do see the gap, just you know, adherence is a problem for sure, but it's also an issue when you actually go um, to to make the claim because you need to be statistically significant in in your in what you're trying to say, and so that requires a whole different skill set. Um, you know, your your biostatisticians are accustomed to looking at episodic data that happens in clinic when these participants come in for their site visits, but it's a different ball of wax when you are thinking about. Um, Okay, what do I do with this? You know, this sort of continuous data. Do I average it over three days? Do I average it over seven days? What what makes the most sense to to interpret this the right way? And how can I show the evidence trail all the way back to the the, the sensor so that the agency you know will support what I'm trying to say here? So yeah, I 100% agree. So I I did fetch that link. It should be at the top of your screen now. A nice library that uh, the community is sharing through uh, Dime. Digital Medicine Society. So at least there's a sense of where some of these have been used as primary and secondary endpoints uh, to date. Nelson, stick around. It's a great question. Uh, we only have about five minutes left. Fran Ross, I'd love to have you come off mute, introduce yourself, share your question today. Hi, everybody. What a fantastic session today and so heartening to hear the community's agreement on the focus of the the human hero journey, right? We're, we're doing this for, for the people who, who participate. Um, I've been a trialist for a bajillion and a half years and I'm currently uh, consulting and working on the stealth project, blah, blah, blah. But my, when I heard about this sort of curiosity and questions about what is the, the sort of growth curve and trending here, my first instinct, I popped out to clintrials.gov to see if they have any requirements to for sponsors to report on what kind of technologies they're using in the trials. I didn't find any, nor on the UDRAC site. And I don't know if DIMES has like a self-reporting capability. Would it be helpful if these were trended somewhere or would it be more painful than we want to think about? It's a great question, Fran. Of course, uh, for for those who follow the history of CT.gov, it was, of course, first developed as a registry to track trials. It really wasn't designed to be a patient front end for searching and matching. It really was meant to be a registry for researchers to look at trends in the world of clinical trials. And, um, but of course, there are always compliance issues with the burden of trying to keep studies up to date and to make sure that they're accurate and complete. And so how do we find that balance, I suppose, of do we track there and try to expose this? Are people going to be reticent to share any of those details or will we have compliance issues around that. Um, Jeremy, Keith, Jennifer, any takers in terms of thinking about maybe where would be the best place for the environment to track what's actually being done on different studies today? Any takers? This is a, a tricky one because, uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily intuitive. It may be that places like that crowdsourced library friend from Dime may be some of our best bet in terms of uh, giving us a repository for tracking what's actually happening. Keith? Yeah, I mean, we've, <laughs> we've been trying to figure out the market size here, right? And, and the, despite the potential, there aren't any market research firms that are really 
tracking this at this point in time. Uh, so I'd love to see ISR, right, start surveying sponsors and, and, and gathering this, this information uh, along with market size and everything. You know, uh, ct.gov is, you know, it's a, it's a mishmash. You can find, you can search for wearables and you can find them. But it's not, as, as, as Fran said, it's not systematically reported and that, that's, that's problematic. But it's kind of the best we have right now. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm hopeful that the market research companies, the reliable ones, will come into the space and help um, make some progress here. And Jeremy, did I see you uh, come off mute there as well? Yeah, just, you know, it's a tough one. But um, I think Dom's done a pretty good job with that curated database of, of identifying um you know, a, a little bit of that. Sometimes they'll list it, you know, in, in, in the description, but most times they don't. We, we obviously like Keith do a lot of market research here and you, you can narrow it down when they start talking about raw data. Okay. Well, that eliminates this group. Or, you know, if they start talking about um, different use cases, you, you know, it's process of elimination, but that's, that's, that's what we do. It's what we do all the time. So we, but yeah, man, we need a place to, to know, uh, you know, at least categorically, what's what's been done there and, and used. I I don't have a good a good answer to it. Sounds like a good open action item, and maybe some of it, Amir, we need to uh, put in the queue for DTRA in terms of thinking about best tracking for decentralized approaches, at least being used in this space. But we are at the top of the hour, so uh, Amir, any other final thoughts or closing uh, observation? No, I just really appreciate that everyone had a real conversation and really appreciated so Jeremy's approach to it. Keith and Jennifer do a great job. And I really am thankful for the people who stepped up and asked their questions and, uh, um, you know, very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Very authentic. I, uh, this, this uh, knowing, with, knowing Jeremy, Keith, Jennifer the way I do, I'm not surprised at all. Thank you, everybody. Come on back next week. Demystifying Oncology uh, decentralized trials. Otherwise, thank you all. Have a great weekend. Happy celebration for any who have a celebration involved. Otherwise, just enjoy a beautiful spring weekend.